This is the victory that overcomes the world. All right, y'all ready for tonight? Yeah! All right. Yeah. Tonight we are in First Chronicles 17. Oh, yeah. Woo! Oh, yeah. We are covering yeah. one chapter tonight. Yeah. That still doesn't alleviate us from our two-hour allotment that we have. Oh, I promise. <laughs> Let's use it. Two and a half. Who wouldn't think yeah. that would? Two and a half. So tonight is First Chronicles 17. We're going to entitle it Father Son Goals. <laughs> Father Son Goals. Not barbecue. <laughs> well, good evening, family. Yeah. It's exciting to be here tonight. Tonight we are going to build on some amazing concepts that we have been sharing and get into some encouraging, faith-building themes. You're going to like tonight. You're going to walk out of here feeling like a son ready to do his father's will. Yeah. You're going to want to take notes, pay attention to all the details, and pray that God would level our hearts as we jump into the Word and ask the Spirit of God to incline our hearts. Yeah. This time, if we can have... Elder Charlie, pray for us. That you, your word levels our platform that we stand upon, Lord God, and strengthens the, the word within us, Lord God, as we just build up, and you build us up according to your word and your work, Lord God, we come before you to glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, saints, we want to review just a couple brief concepts before we jump into the text. As we keep going, it's not possible for us to review Everything each time, we have to narrow it down. But these few items will help us understand the context this evening. Let's take a look at our first slide. This should be familiar to you by now. We have the Torah, the Nadim, the Tetuvim, all prophets and writings. Tonight's text is in the writings. It is about how to live a faithful life in your context. Very specifically with Ezra, is someone who has already been through the captivity that is looking at God's promises in the chapter this evening. Amen. So where are we at tonight? Verse 17. In the writings. So we're going to see something special hidden in the context of Ezra's historical position as well. I want to show you another slide that we've been going over. This is about the monarchy the spans of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. You guys are familiar with this slide. You see that it takes First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings to span all the way from Samuel to the Babylonian exile. Ezra, the writer of Chronicles, does that in two books, and he's writing after the Babylonian exile. Everybody say after. 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 The books of Samuel were written by Samuel and the school of prophets relatively close to the events that occurred. They were writing them as they happened, a collection of prophets. Chronicles is written by Ezra after all his recorded events already happened. Amen. So think about that. After everything he's writing about happened, he is writing and compiling. So that gives him an interesting perspective. Oh, yeah. His book chronicles the dynasty of David and his sons primarily, primarily. 
We're going to look at a couple chapters that we've covered so far, and we're going to try to zoom out to a 10,000-foot view. You guys want to do that? Yeah. So, so in the first week, we covered chapters 1 through 9. It's related to the purpose and the overall plan of the two books in our Bible, but the one book in the Hebrew Bible that is Chronicles. We went through nine chapters. Somebody say nine chapters. Nine. nine chapters. Of genealogies and saw the writer Ezra tracing the promise given to David. Now, saints, that's particularly important this evening because we're going to cover the promises given to David. Amen. This was the purpose of showing us the way in which God brought this about. We also saw how the book in its original order in the canon demonstrated its connectivity to the very first book of the Brit Hadashah. It was intended to prep us for everything else that was going to come. In the second week, we covered 1 Chronicles 10 and 11. What we covered in, those, in that week is the brief, everybody say brief. 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 The brief death of Saul's house and the immediate transfer to the Davidic dynasty. Yeah. Man, hallelujah for a brief death of Saul's house. Amen. In the third week, we covered 1 Chronicles 12. We covered the way David honored the God of heaven's host. And in return, David was able to assemble an army like God's. You guys remember that? Yeah. yeah. We saw how every tribe assembled to make David king. There wasn't one tribe that was left out. Every tribe was assembled there to make David king. Just like when Jesus returns, every tribe will be assembled. Yeah. We witnessed the inclusion of Gentiles because they were willing to serve David and David's people. You guys starting to see the big picture here? Yeah. yeah. Who liked chapter 12? Does anybody remember that? Yes. An army like the army of God on earth. Yes. In our fourth week, we covered chapter 13, 14, and 15. Included in these chapters was the failure of the priesthood to apply God's word, even though they were doing something that God wanted done. You remember the concept where we have the overall will of God, but he has a specific plan and a specific way that must be derived from his word and not personal preferences. Yeah. We also saw some beautiful things of Gentiles giving an offering of material uh, lumber, stone, to help build up the house of God. This is a representation of things that we are going to see on a greater scale in the days and years to come. Let's take a look at our fifth week. In our fifth week, which was last week, we covered 1 Chronicles 16. Man, that was a good chapter, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You guys learned some things from that? Oh, yeah. What we covered was the transition of the ark from the tabernacle of Moses to David's tent. We saw the time that David's tent was standing in as a transitional time period. It was a phase that the ark was in. It was in between the mobile tabernacle and the permanent dwelling that God predestined. We went over and over through the scriptures where God said, I would choose a dwelling for my name. I would choose a place for my people to dwell. And then we saw the transfer between the mobile tabernacle and going on towards the permanent dwelling of God. What's that permanent dwelling? Solomon's temple. That is coming up. We saw things that occurred during this time period. Remember like the Gentiles coming in to serve the king? Like the remnant of the Jews willing to make him king over all Israel? We saw what occurred during that time period and how they related to the book of Acts. You guys remember that? Yeah. Yeah. The book of Acts, they're seeing Gentiles come in. They're seeing remnant of Israel come to make the son of David king. 
and the writers of the book of Acts saw it as the time period of David's tent. Last but not least, this was my favorite. We saw that Moses' tabernacle existed at the same time as David's tent. Did you guys catch that? They existed at the same time. The two things clearly were not in contradiction to each other. Man, that was a new thing for us, right? Oh, yeah. They were not in contradiction. They were both being used at the same time. They worked in conjunction with each other until the permanent solution would come and until the permanent solution would envelop both of those things. If you have eyes to see, you will notice the same thing happening in our day right now, but on a much greater and glorious scale. We want to submit to you again that Moses has not been done away with. Moses' system, his commands has not been done away with, and yet there is a tent being rebuilt on its way to a permanent dwelling of God. That's where we're at right now. But it's on a much greater and glorious scale. Many of you asked us last week, after we got done with the teaching, many of you asked, why is David's tent considered fallen? Did any of you have that question? Come on, don't be afraid to raise your hands. Anybody wonder, you know, I get the transitional period, I get the phase, but why is it considered fallen in Amos' time? This week, we will will see how chapter 17 answers that question. We saved it for this week so you can see the full picture. And there are many more powerful illusions of things to come that you will see tonight. Saints, we're family in here. I love you. You're going to have to wake up. Some of you are dozing off 10 minutes in or nine minutes in. Spencer, will you stand up and pray for us? We're going to rouse our spirits and respond to what God is doing in the room. Amen. Saints, this is a family meeting, and I'm intense on having a good time with you because we're a family. This is not some starchy presentation. We're going to interact with the Word together as a group. We are going to see how David's fallen tent, why it's called that, and how it's going to resurrect this evening. It's going to be a good night, Saints. Brother Linton, will you pick up reading for us and give us the full rundown of the chapter, man? Yes. After David was settled in his palace... He said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. Nathan replied to David, Whatever you have in mind, do it, for God is is with you. That night the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says. You are not the one to build me a house to dwell in. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought Israel up out of Egypt to this day. I have moved from one tent site to another from one dwelling place to another. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the leaders whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now, 
I will make your name like the name of the greatest men of, of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can, be, they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning. And Come I've done on. ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. Wow. I will also subdue all your enemies. I declare, to, I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him, as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. They can report to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And if this were not enough in your sight, O God, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant. You have looked on me as though I were most, I were the most exalted of men, O Lord God. What more can David say to you for honoring your servant? For you know your servant, O Lord. For the sake Amen. of your servant and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made known all these great promises. There is no one like you, O Lord. Hallelujah. And there is no God but you. As we have heard about with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whose, whose God went out to redeem a people for himself. And to make a name for yourself. And to perform great and awesome wonders by dropping out nations before your people. Whom you redeemed from Egypt. You made your people Israel your very own forever. And you, O oh Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord, let the promise you made concerning your servant and his house be established forever. Do as you promised, so that it will be established and that your name will be great forever. Then men will say, the Lord Almighty, the God over Israel, is Israel's God, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. You, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him. So your servant has found courage to pray to you. Amen. O oh Lord, you are God. You have promised these good things to your servant. Now, you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, O oh Lord, have blessed it, and it will be blessed forever. Amen. All right, Linton. Let's pick up in verse 1. We're going to go line by line together. Verse 1. After David was settled in his palace, he said to Nathan, prophet. Here I am living in the palace of cedar while the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. Thanks. This is an amazing part that is expressed here. This is a passage that we've all read before, but we want to look at it with you a little differently this evening. <laughs> the point that the, of the passage is that this tent is here temporarily. It was intended to be a transitionary piece. It was never intended to be there forever. And David is looking at his own house at the own blessings that God has given him. And he's saying, here I am with the dew of heaven, with the blessings from above, with God gracing me, and his presence is still sitting in a tent. Something inside the man of God just couldn't stand for it. He said, we have to do something about this. It began to grow as a conviction. 
Has God blessed you in this house? Yes. We want to engage with the kind of heart that David has here and learn to cultivate the same fire that he has, and God will honor it and cause it to progress. David had built a tent himself, and it was not contradictory with the tent of Moses because he knew what was going to happen in the end. They're going to become one yet again. What is most beautiful to notice here is that David displays a heart for God that is much like a son's heart for his father. He realized that he has been blessed by the Almighty God, that his father has been kind to him, and now suddenly he is learning to want to reciprocate. He has seen how God has established him, and he wants to do the same. David does not rest on everything that he's accomplished in his life thus far. And he has accomplished some monumental things, but he's not done yet. Chronicles is written to highlight some very specific things that we're going to see as we go. David does not forget God in his time of prosperity. Man, is that not a word for our nation and our people? He did not forget his God during a time of prosperity. In fact, it made him start to long for the exaltation of the house of God. This is less like a transactional relationship than, look, what we see all around us, I don't have to explain. But what we're talking about is with each other this evening. That kind of transactional relationship that is, I need this, so I'm praying for that. I want this, so I'm praying for this. This has been hard, so I'm going to do what the Word of God says for the result. No, that's not at all the kind of relationship the son of David had. He had one that was familial, that was not a counterfeit disciple committee, a CDC. It was more like an actual relationship between a father and a son. So where was David seated? Where was he settling in? He was settling in a palace. Here David was seated in a palace that God had built through the hands of Gentiles. And while he's seated in a palace, what's the one thing he cannot stop thinking about? My father's house. My father's house. Here is my father's presence in a tent. And here I am in a palace. Come on, that's a message if you're willing to receive it. Come on, it's so easy to be in a palace and yet forget where your father is at. The heart of a son is always looking. How could I be here in this palace when my father has sacrificed everything for me to be right where I am? David doesn't settle and he does not rest on everything that's been accomplished. You know, we all know and say that God is a good father. We sing songs about it. We know that conceptually. But how many of us would be concerned if God's house is in a less established state while we are in a palace? If God's house needs some fixing, if your father's house needs some work on it, how many of us are really concerned about it? And not just because we know our father's going to be angry that it doesn't get done. It's just because I can't let my father stay like that. I can't let him stay in a place that's undone. I have to go to work because it's for my father's honor and glory. Come on now. Matthew 6, 31 through 34 says this. Says, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. See that son-father relationship there? But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. David had all these things at this point in his life. Think about what it just lists. Food, drink, clothes, palaces. David had all these things. David understood that everything he has, though, came from his father. They were a gift from him. It wasn't something he got on his own. David sought first God's kingdom, 
even though he had all these things. True. That is what we're conveying tonight. The heart for David to, to be in a palace and to be considered to, to be kind of wrecked, smitten, concerned about his father's glory, his father's name, goes to show what kind of heart after God David had. We all know that David had a heart after God, but you see it in his actions. He didn't settle where he was. He was always concerned where his father was at, even though he had all these things. Amen. We all the time ha do not have these things, and yet we don't have the same concern David had when he had all those things. Wow, he had the things, and yet he was still concerned about his father's glory. I, I want you to contrast this heart yeah. to Haggai 1. Haggai 1, 2 through 4. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Saints, can I get a huge, that's not going to be us. That's not going to be us. This is going to be a good evening together. We're addressing that kind of heart, that kind of attitude, but it's not going to stay in this room. It won't be in this room. Amen. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. It is time for you, your, is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Saints, I want you to consider this passage with what just happened in the very first verse of chapter 17. Who had to be sent? <laughs> they had to send a prophet to get them to consider what God was calling them to do. Nobody came to David. In fact, he's going to go to someone else and ask them to consider it before God to see if he can do it. They had to be reminded to care about their father's house. This evening, we are aiming to understand the overall principles that are in the word of God, but cultivate a relationship between you and the Lord that is close like a father and a son. Amen. What would you think of a man that is watching his elderly father waste away in a home that was unfit, that had a roof leak, that was not functioning properly, that had holes in the floor, while you yourself sat in a palace? Something inside of you screams, no, that's not right. right. Well, saints, we are not talking about a warehouse church this evening. We're speaking about a heart that is after God, longing Amen. for your father and his Amen. glory, and you care nothing else. Oh, come on, that's good. David had this desire because he always wanted to please his father. It wasn't about a specific building. It was about what his father's desire was. He had a heart that was after him. Linton, will you pick up in verse 2 for us? Yeah. <laughs> Nathan replied to David, whatever you have in mind, do it, for God is with you. Now that, that is just the funniest statement that you can think of. Here is a prophet of God, and he's hearing what David wants to do, and he says, hey, whatever is in your heart, do it. God is with you. It was probably easy for Nathan to say that because he knew David's heart. He knew David had a heart after God. He had watched David, and he has seen that David withstood trials. David went out and did what the Lord wanted to. He had heard the Lord's word. He loved the Lord as a father. But nonetheless, don't you think that Nathan should have consulted the word and the spirit of God before yeah. he spoke? Yeah. Yeah. Level ground. Don't you think instead of presuming, yeah, you know what? That's great. Do what you have to do. And guess what? Even though this was the will of God for David to do this, this was the will of God for David to desire building a place because God said it all over through the Torah. And yet... How important is it when you know the will of God to pray and ask the Lord, hey, Lord, how is this supposed to be done? Yeah. Not what am I supposed to do? How is this supposed to be yeah. done? He should have consulted the word and the spirit of God before speaking. Yeah. Like Agabus. You know Agabus? Yeah. 
with, with a belt like this, you will be bound in Jerusalem? And he assumed that Paul was going to die there? How about Peter? When Jesus is speaking of his crucifixion, he says, never, Lord. He missed out on giving level instruction because he left his level at home. If he would have had his level with him, he would have been able to inquire of the God on the spot. Somebody say, praise God for the word of Lord. Next couple of verses, brother. That night the word of God came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. You are not the one to build the house for me to dwell in. Mark 12, 24 says, Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? We've covered that scripture a lot lately, but we're working to apply it in a practical kind of way in our daily life. When you know something is God's will, he wants it done. And learning to get the specificity of how, who, and when from God so that we do it the right way. Praise God that the word of the Lord came to Nathan. I want you to notice that there's an urgency in the way that God communicates this to him. It came to him in the night. And in verse 4 it says, go and tell my servant. Not when you wake up. (laughs) Not later on. Go tell my servant. Basically, fix the problem that you created right now. (laughs) And it came to pass on that same night that the word of God came to Nathan saying, it is explained in the Midrash. They go through several courses here. To the man who I am sending you is a bower. Go forth and tell him before he swears to build. You should not build me the house of my dwelling. Another explanation. To the man to whom I am sending you is zealous. Go tell him before he hires the workers. <laughs> this is not scripture. This is just a bit of humorous commentary, but it does speak a little bit about David's character. He's the kind of man where when he got affirmation from a prophet, from something that he saw in the word, he was not going to waste any time. In fact, they're joking, saying he's going to have the workers hired by morning if you don't get there. Go now, run. Saints, this is how David is known. I want to ask you this evening, though. Do you consider yourself a man of your word? Come on. All right, you're going to have to respond. You're those kind of people. The question that we have to reconcile before us and the Lord is does he consider you a man of his of your word? Come on. When David heard something, God put an urgency on the prophet because he knew David was not going to get around to it in two weeks. He was not going to get around to it in a month. There was urgency because he knew his servant. Well, since he knows every one of you and he knows me, would God need to give you that same kind of urgency? Would he need to make sure that we got it right? Or would he know that you could... Be counted on to get around to it next month. David was only just waiting on the word from the prophet. Yes. That's the only thing we're holding yeah. He went and asked because it was his desire. He's looking for direction and counsel from God, and he got his thumbs up. <laughs> the Lord expects him to move quickly, so he sends the prophet right after it. Somebody, Cody, will you get Proverbs 15? I'm sorry, Psalm 15. We're going to read uh, verse 1, then get verse 4 and 5 for us. Justin will tell us about it. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? Verse 4. Who despises a vile man, who honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his oath even when it hurts, who lends his money without usury and does not accept bribes against the innocent? He who does these things will never be shamed. Wow. Hmm. 
Yeah, I love this passage so much because it talks about keeping an oath even when it hurts. Apparently, David was known by God as the kind of man that if he gets confirmation to do something that is God's will, even though David does not know how it's supposed to be done, if he gets confirmation, he's just going to go do it. He's not going to wait for anything else. David was known as a man who kept his oath. In fact, he wrote this psalm. He wrote this psalm. How do you dwell in God's sanctuary? Well, think about that for a second, because what is David talking about he's about to build here? He knows that he's a man who keeps his oath, so he wants to build the sanctuary for God. Only somebody who does that can do it. I know Justin can answer this question. <laughs> Anybody say an oath has ever hurt you to keep it? Yes. <laughs> that ought to do two things in a man. One, you should be a little slower to commit with your mouth, but you're not able to accomplish with your feet. The other one is you ought to learn to steal your will about the things that the Lord spoke to you. Because he it watches and knows his servants. We're going to find out even a little more down, down the road in this chapter how well he knows his servants. He knows whether or not he can trust you to keep your word. Mm. We want to live a life like David that he knows he can entrust the kingdom of heaven to you. Yeah, That's amen. our desire for you this evening. Read verse 5 for us, Linton. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought Israel out of Egypt to this day. I have moved from one tent site to another, from one dwelling place to another. Man, it's like God was living in a motorhome, wasn't he? <laughs> I want you to think about something here with this passage. While God was with the mobile tabernacle, while God was with Moses' tabernacle, he always promised a permanent dwelling. He was at, God was at in Deuteronomy, he was speaking from Moses' tabernacle, and he was talking about a permanent dwelling that would come. This was always God's intention. Amen. Now we have to see that although it was God's will for David to do this, it was extremely important to God how it would happen. Yeah. It wasn't just that God wanted it to happen. It had to be done at a certain time. You guys remember some of the teachings that we shared about Israel asking for a king, and there was a little time period where that delayed when the right king should come? Yeah. You guys remember that? Yeah. With God, there is a certain timing. There is a certain way that God wanted it to be done. Guess what? God wants that, that dwelling to be built, but who does he want to use to do it? He wants to use a son to do it. Come on, how important is that for your eschatology tonight, church, that God chooses a son to build a permanent dwelling? Amen. That's why it was important for David to not only know the will of God, but to hear how to get it done. Amen? Amen. Brother Linton, will you get verse 6 for us? Yeah. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their leaders whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Amen. Jackie, do you still have a uh, NASB with you? You're in a 1984. No, I'm in NASB. NASB. How about you read verse 6 again? In all places where I have walked with Israel, have I spoken a word with any of the judges of Israel, Ooh. whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built for me a house of cedar? To a certain extent, a leader and a judge in the Bible are very, very similar. They're almost the same thing. But more than that, the writer was trying to call to mind a certain time frame that in a few verses he's going to use this word again to bring it back up. Let's take a look at a slide together. This is the singular form for Shofadim, what, what the book of Judges is called. 
Mobile Tabernacle existed through the entire time. The men did what was right in their own eyes, and Israel had no king. And it was not established as a dwelling place for God during that season. Saints, can you ponder a guess as to why? What were we waiting on? <laughs> Come on, somebody talk to me. What were we waiting on during Judges before we could ever lay the foundation of a standing temple? David, the Davidic household. We had a king that was coming, but not quite yet here. We had a son that was coming, but not yet here. They were waiting for a kingly line. Under the jurisdiction of the judges, God did not choose to create a permanent dwelling place. Let's take a look at this next slide together. Anybody remember this from Monday nights? Oh, yeah. yeah. The cycle of, there we have this rebellion. We have Israel being enslaved, retribution for their sin. We have them crying out to God. And then God raises up a judge for them. Under the preaching, teaching, and leadership of that judge, we have repentance, deliverance, and then restoration. But what over and over and over again happened? Sin and idolatry. Sin and idolatry brought us right back to the same endless loop. God is going to promise something to the Davidic line this evening that breaks the loop. Come on. Amen. That breaks it permanently. Amen. That frees you from the life of sin that you once lived. That causes you to walk full and alive in Christ. Yeah, Not on. a saint on Sunday and then a dog by Friday afternoon. Yeah. He came to bring an everlasting promise. Amen. I want to read that verse again, verse 6. Can you read that, Linton? Yes. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their leaders whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Did I ever say to the Shofa team, you have not built me a house of cedar? No. I want you to think about that for a second. In the book of Judges, we saw that cycle over and over and over again. Let's put that slide back up there. We saw this cycle over and over and over in the book of Shofa team. Every week. How many times does that look like our lives? Come on, let's, let's be honest. We come to church, we get restored. After we get restored, man, we go out to lunch and we have a good time. And then something happens called Monday. It shows up that night and we're somewhere in rebellion. And then we're facing the retribution for our own sin. And we're like, Lord, when is Wednesday going to be here? <laughs> and then Wednesday happens and we get at the altar and we cry out to God. And then Elohim raises up a judge, usually in the form of Matthew and Wade. And we enter into repentance, and we get all delivered, and we sing about deliverance, and we're restored. That cycle over and over again. God's telling David, look, in the cycle of the Shofatim, I did not ask a permanent dwelling. Why do you think God said that? Do you think that God wanted to dwell in a cycle of Shofatim? No. Not at all. Things got so bad that at the end of the book of Judges, literally the last verses say everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Man, where would we be if we all did that? God didn't ask for anyone to build a permanent dwelling that time because no one could. They were always in a cycle of the Shofatim. Think about our lives in that scenario. How many times does God want to build something permanent in your life, but he can't do it because there's a cycle that can't be broken? Oh, come on now. Man, that cycle has got to be broken, and we have to have a Davidic son that rises up and crushes it so God can build something permanent. God didn't ask for anyone to build a permanent dwelling. 
He also, I also can't imagine God wanting to dwell with those people at the time. I mean, to be quite honest, you think God says, hey, but, yep, that's where I want my permanent dwelling. Wow. No, certain things have to happen. There has to be a death of Saul. There has to be the rising up of a Davidic king and a son that's born to build something permanent. Yep. They cried out for a king because they thought that that was the answer. But God's solution was to raise up a son. Yeah. Church. Who would Raising later up a son. That is always God's solution is to raise up sons to break the cycle Amen. of Shofetim. Saints, there's something in that for us this evening. You want to dwell with God. You want to see his throne, his kingdom established. But the thing that keeps it from ever being permanent in your life is the cycle of the Shofetim. So you might have the Lord move on you. You might have a mobile experience where you're free, you're free in Christ. You can feel a spirit in a worship service and it makes you feel better. But that's not the same thing as you living day in and day out in his presence. Come on. And the permanent dwelling with God and man can never come while we live in that cycle. But the writer wanted us to know that there was freedom from it found in the Davidic son. Yeah. Amen. Brother Linton, will you pick up in 7 and read verse 8 as well? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty said. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be a ruler over all my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now, I will make your name like the names of the greatest men of the earth. Man. Saints, I want you to remember that David was a very zealous man. In fact, when he was about to do something that he believed was the Lord's will, there was an urgency that the Lord communicated to that prophet. The Lord saw David's care for simple sheep and the ferocity of his attacks against lions and bears that might harm them. He saw him when he was tending to the flocks and he brought him to shepherd his people Israel. Come on. Saints, I want to tell you this evening, the small things that you do before the Lord matter. Yeah. Not only do they matter, they are the foundation for everything else that you do. Husbands, your flock at home is how God evaluates your capability to handle anything else in the world. Oh. That flock... David cared for tenderly and ferociously he dealt with the things that might harm him. David's care for his sheep and the people of Israel stemmed from his reverence for his father's name. Yeah. Whether it was Jesse's sheep or the Lord's, he was wholehearted in his devotion and the Lord noticed it. Amen. He didn't tend to the sheep because sheep are fun every day. Ask these two pastors. They tended to the sheep <laughs> because they revered God's name. Amen. That shows up in David's life. And he then decides to make David's name great. Come on, come on, saints. So I can tell you in this house, when you revere God's name, he will take care of the rest. Amen. The more you're concerned about your own name, your own honor, you're excluding yourself from God's exaltation. I want to take a look at a quick slide with you. This is the 1984 NIV punched into PC study Bible. Not filtered. Just David with an asterisk next to it. So if it's possessive, it, it shows up as well. 1,089 matches in 960 verses. Wow. Wow. Since you don't find the name Jesus appear that much. No. You don't find the name Moses appear that much. Not Abraham. Extraordinarily great man, including Abraham. His name shows up almost a thousand times in a thousand verses. That is because God decided to exalt that name. Amen. We want to hand out a few passages that are the first instance and some of the last instances that you see David's name show up. Brandon, will you get Ruth 417? That's fitting. <laughs> Steve Thomas, Luke 
1, 32 and 33. Daniel Cho, Revelation 5, 5. Pat Rosales, Revelation 22, 16. You can read when you get there, Brandon. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Man, you almost get the impression that the entire book of Ruth is to get to this point. <laughs> so that we can mention yeah. David. Yeah. This is the last chapter of the book of Ruth, and it's already quoting someone who is going to come in the next book. That ought to show you how important it is that David arrives on the scene. What's Luke 1, 32 through 33? Come on. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Saints, so Luke completes David's genealogy, letting you know where he came from. Beautiful story. Not knocking it. Very thankful for it. It's helped us in marriage teaching and in all kinds of areas. But the original point was he was showing you how their line came into existence. And then the gospel of Jesus Christ opens up with his name. We've shared on this verse many times in the ways that Christ wants to associate himself with David because that is the line that he comes from, that is his authority, that is the promise that was spoken about this evening. But more than that, David's name shows up as the introduction as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm. So everything you've come to know and love that has affected your life, the way that it is introduced is by the name of David because yeah. God chose to make it great. Yeah. Revelation 5.5. 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the line of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Man, this is the book of Revelation. This is the Newer Testament. Actually... Most of the letters in this book are written to Gentiles in the book of Revelation. So why doesn't it say, see, the line of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ has triumphed. Why does it go back to David? Because of all of the promises that God made to David and how De God has made David's name great. You see, we skim over these verses and we don't realize that David is the number one Symbolic factor is the number one sign to show you right here that this is the Messiah. He is the son of David. It's that important. Wow. He's Who's communicated got with the victory that is Christ. So when we're speaking about how he overcame this, they want you to know he's the son of David. Yeah. Side note, we do not have the time to go into the root of David tonight. I desperately want to, but we cannot do it. If you buy Ohad a steak, or a cup of coffee. He probably will cook the steak for you. Yeah. Just You just got to bring the food, man. He does a great job. Go sit down in Isaiah 11 and ask him questions until he's tired of answering any more questions. <laughs> that subject gives you an idea of the living, embodied power in the root of David that is not actually dead. It is still alive and it's springing forth. Yeah. Revelation 22, 16. Revelation 22, 16. I, Jesus, have set my angels. Saints, this is at the close of the canon. I want you to take note of the bright morning star. Just remember that. We're going to come back around to it, I promise. There is something about David that is embodied by a star. There is something about Jesus that is embodied by a rising morning star specifically. You literally can get away, can't get away from the name David as you study the word. All the way from Ruth, all the way to Revelation. You do not get away from it. 
Because of his concern for God's house, God wanted to build something for him. See, David, like any good son, wanted to build something for his father. And yet, the entire time, his father just wants to build something for him. There's very few pictures in the Bible that are quite as beautiful as this. This is exactly the father-son relationship that God yearns for. In fact, we want to show you something. As we typed in David and uh, we found how many matches there were, we decided to do something else. We typed in father and uh, we put the asterisk in there so you get all of the different ways father, like fathers, fathering, whatever. We found that there were 1,612 matches in the Bible for father. That's obviously more than David, but there's something interesting that, that leads to. Show us the next slide. We typed in son, and we saw that there are 3,358 matches in the Bible for son. You want to know what that means? That means that the word son appears in the Bible more than twice the amount of times that the word father appears in the Bible. Do you think that the entire Bible is trying to teach us something here? Do you think the entire story of David is trying to teach us this kind of relationship that he had with his father that was so intimate, get this, when he wanted to do something for his father, his father said, no, you know what, in turn, I'm going to do something for you instead. Because you've been following me like a faithful son. I am going to build you. Tell me that is not the righteous desire of every father in the room. When your son comes up to you and says, I want to do something for you, dad. He said, yeah, but I got something for you too, son. I'm going to build up your kingdom and your throne. That is exactly what's going on here. The entire Bible is about father and son relationship. God building up. Think of Abraham for a second. Abraham was an exalted father. He must have learned that from God himself. He was an exalted father, and because he was an exalted father, God changed his name and turned him into a father of many. God is always looking for exalted fathers to lead families so that he can add more increase into their life. And that's what we're seeing here. Saints, when you see that number, this is just in one translation. It's not a Strong's number. It's not an Englishman's concordance. And it's not including any reference to children. Like Isaiah 59, 21 is close to my heart, but that's not in this list. It is pervasive through the word because God is trying to speak a message constantly. Even when you're reading a genealogy, you know that their names mean something. You know that their lineage is for a purpose. But God wanted you to know the fathers that raised righteous sons. They carried on the word of the testimony. The sons that took what their fathers had given them and built a house that was glorious. The only message in the Bible that is on the same kind of par is the story of a bride and of a groom. And you know what a bride and a groom were always intended to produce? Righteous offspring. This is the story of the Bible. And this is a shining example that we get to glean from this evening. Come on. Brother Linton, will you read verse 9 and 10 for us? I will provide a palace for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Come on, say that again. No longer be disturbed. No longer be disturbed. Come on. Keep going, brother. will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done it ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. Man, this is the verse that we have been waiting to get to in all of Chronicles. We have been telling you over and over that the book of Chronicles is about recording a promise. And this is the verse that we have been waiting to get to. He says, I will provide a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own. And no longer be disturbed. 
Wicked people will not oppress them anymore. Amen. Never again will wicked people oppress my people Israel as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. Are you catching that? Yeah. Every time I since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. Can you guess what that Hebrew word is there? Shofetim. What's God saying that? What, why is he saying that? He's saying, I'm going to do something in my people Israel, and the cycle of Shofetim will never happen again. Amen. There will yeah. never have to be oppression over my people again. Amen. The cycle of Shofetim will not need to happen because there will not be any resistance within them and without them. Now we have to ask a few questions about this verse because it gets pretty interesting here, okay? Who do you think this passage is referring to? When he's saying, what do you think this passage is referring to? When he's saying, I will provide a place for my people Israel, what do you think that, that is referring to? What's coming right after David? What structure is going to be built next? The temple. All right, so you take, this, take this into your minds for a second. Is this talking about the temple? He's saying, I will provide a place, I will plant them, and they will no longer be disturbed. Is it talking about the temple here? Well, if you were there in the time of Solomon, you were probably thinking to yourself, man, this is it. Yeah. This is it. Solomon has made peace, and all of God's enemies, we have rest from every side from all of our enemies. Yeah. Yeah. If you were there during Solomon's temple, you might have thought, man, God is really faithful to his promise, David. But think about that for a second. If that's true, then what happens after Solomon's temple? What happens when invaders start coming in after David and Solomon dies? What happens after the kingdom splits and ten kings go, ten tribes go one way and two tribes go another? See, I don't know that we're talking more about a temple here, are we? Do you think possibly we could be talking about something further down the road? I think so. While this is true to an extent, while this is true that it's talking about Solomon's temple, look closely about what he's saying about this place. When God provides this place, wicked people cease to oppress. When God plants his people, Israel will no longer be disturbed in their home. Saints, has this ever happened? No. This has never happened. Remember that the chronicler's position is after the Babylonian exile when he wrote this. He is sitting after all the events happened, after all these things did not apply, after all these things were not fulfilled in Solomon's temple, and he's writing after it. So what do you think that he's trying to say here? He saw Moses' mobile tabernacle give way to David's tent. Ezra saw that when he's writing Chronicles. But where's David's tent at this moment? Not there. It's gone. And guess what? Solomon's temple was built and it was destroyed. That's not there either. In the time of Ezra the Chronicler, none of those three were standing. Moses' tabernacle, David's tent, and Solomon's temple. None of the three were standing. And you want, you want to know what we have unfulfilled in Ezra's time? We do not have a place where the wicked are not oppressing anymore. We do not have a place where Israel is planted forever. Are you starting to see some of the importance of knowing what Ezra is really saying here? Yeah. He's chronicling a promise. 
This is how, and I want you to hear me. You guys following? This is how Amos can say that David's tent was fallen. Because for one, it did not exist. It wasn't there. It had been taken down. And because it had been taken down and these things weren't fulfilled, he saw it as something that needed to be rebuilt. Yeah. Amos saw You can feel it coming again. He saw this passage and he said, hey, these things have to happen. We're going to have to have David's tent again. The David's tent phase did not result in five critical promises of God to David. All right? Those five critical promises are found in this passage in Chronicles 17. The first one is, I will provide a place, a permanent dwelling. I will plant them. But guess what? They get uprooted later on in the process. They go into exile. They will have a home. But guess what? Israel gets scattered down the road. No longer will they be disturbed. Man, tell Hezekiah that Solomon's temple fulfilled everything. Because when Sennacherib comes at his front gates, he's like, all right, I need David's tent again. What's going on? Wicked people will not oppress them anymore. They became reduced to servitude during the exile. Those five critical promises are how we know that David's tent is gone and did not accomplish everything it was supposed to. It did not usher in a permanent dwelling that fulfilled all these five promises. Y'all get that? Let's look at this one more time, just as simplistically as possible. We have Moses' mobile tabernacle. Everybody with me? We have a tent of David that is simultaneously around with the mobile tabernacle. So we have the ark and then the rest of the furnishings. They're coexisting, waiting for the day that the permanent dwelling comes. Then what happens? Everything that was in the tabernacle and was in the tent, it goes into the temple. Then the other two items are no longer erected. They're no longer set up. You will not find the tent of David or the tabernacle set up outside while the temple is physically on the earth. But Amos recognized that that same period of transition that we're waiting for something more permanent on the earth, these promises hadn't been completely fulfilled was coming back alive. And then again, the apostles did later. With that in mind, we're going to read Amos 9 again. 11 through 13. Let's just turn to it together. Amos 9, pick up in verse 11. Let me know, let us know when you're there. 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 Everybody there? There. Elder Charlie's there, so we're going. (laughs) In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. Okay, so why do we need to restore something? Its function and its purpose needed to come back into the earth, back into Israel. It had fallen, the physical tent, but the function, the transitionary time frame that brings us to a greater presence that is a permanent dwelling. Amos began to realize that Israel desperately needs this. In fact, the world needs this. I will repair it, its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. Saints, do we ever in the scripture have David's tent set up again literally? No, is the answer to that question. So what does the prophet have in mind? They're calling out for that son of David that helps bring you to a more permanent dwelling. And they're at a place where that has fallen in every area of their life. 
And they're crying out for it to be restored and they believe that God is doing it. Can somebody in the room have a little faith rise with the idea that God could bring you to a more permanent dwelling? Even if it has fallen in your life at some point, He can resurrect it in His house. Justin, will you pick up at 13? The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. Amen. Come on, new wine are going to drip from the mountains yeah. and flow from all the hills. Man, that's going to be a good day. Yeah. I will bring back my exiled people, Come Israel. On. I will bring them back. It's like Amos saw the rebuilding of David's tent as a re-inclusion or a bringing back of his people. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted. Do you hear the same words being spoken here that's spoken exactly to David? It's because Amos understood that these things have not happened in his time and they need to happen. Come on. We're hoping. Sorry. We hope you're starting to see something beautiful here. The promise given to David definitely included his immediate son, Solomon. Yes. We're not saying that Solomon is irrelevant in this passage because you know what's coming up in the next weeks? We are going to get into Solomon's temple and it is going to be glorious. We're going to get into Solomon's temple and we're going to see all of the magnification that Solomon's temple brought to what God instituted in Moses' tabernacle. We're going to get into it. We're going to see what the coming age is going to be like. We're going to see what it's like when the priesthood finally builds what's built yes. in heaven. Yeah. It's going to be glorious. Saints, this is one of those things that you, we, we have to wrap our mind around this. Were you hanging out with Pastor Wade or Pastor Matthew? Which is it? Yeah. Well, the answer might be yes if you're Abambola. <laughs> <laughs> it is about David's immediate son that is coming, but not everything was fulfilled that was going to be fulfilled in the future through another son of David. Right. Yeah. It's simultaneous. Yeah. It's not one or the other. It was spoken in that moment, and it was true about both because God gets to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Many times in Scripture, you will see inklings of something being filled, sometimes two, three, four times, mm-hmm. before we actually get to the place where we have heaven dwelling with the earth. We're going to go ahead and say right now, that what we are talking about is cyclical patterns of prophecy. What we see is being fulfilled in a certain capacity in Solomon's time, but it will be fulfilled in a greater event later on. That is all Bible prophecy, and we're going to see that. The temple would magnify everything Moses' tabernacle was. If you were living at the time of Solomon, you would think that David's promise is complete. But where does Ezra... Where does Ezra... Where does Amos and where do the apostles point to? They're looking for something that is more glorious, greater than Solomon's temple, and further along God's plan. And you know what? We want to give you a sneak preview. Man. It happens to be written at the very end of the canon of Scripture. Let's do it. You want to hear what these men were pointing towards? You want to hear what's pointed towards in 1 Chronicles 17? Why don't you turn in your Bibles to Revelation 21? Verses 2 through 14. And we're just going to kind of relish in this for a little bit. We're just going to kind of revel in what we know that God is going to build. Yeah. Yeah. Because right now we're in that time where we're building David's fallen tabernacle. 
But our effort as sons of our Father is building something that will be permanent. Saints, if you're ever doing something hard and you can see light at the end of the tunnel, you can remind yourself why you're doing this. It gives you a renewed strength. It gives you a renewed vigor. The life that we live is very much so like giving birth to a child. We know that something beautiful, that is joy, is coming, but it feels like you just might not make it. We want to point your eyes toward God's goal, God's target, God's endpoint for you, me, and his people Israel. Let's read it together. Revelation 21. I'm picking up in the second verse. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, Come on. prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. And I cannot wait to hear those words. And he will live with them. Monsignor, that is the most permanent dwelling that you could ever have. Now is the kingdom of God. Now is the dwelling of God with men. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And the idea that one day we're going to get to dwell with him. And that every area that could possibly be wayward will be entirely removed. That you no longer have a heart that is made of sinful man and of the spirit, but we get to be all the spirit of God. Right now we're working to crucify our flesh, become what we are called to be. But there is a glorification coming that I am looking forward to. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Do you see the pattern in 1 Chronicles 17 and Amos and Revelation 22? Wicked people will not oppress them anymore. They will never be uprooted again. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. It was always pointing towards a future permanent fulfillment. Verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Saints, the word of God does not need to say that it is trustworthy and true. But when it does, it adds an overwhelming emphasis. It wants you to take it to heart. It wants you to remember, this is certainly going to happen. The word says it, that settles it. Do it one more time. The word says it, that settles it. it. When the word of God takes the time to say, these words are trustworthy and true, and it's already infallible. It's already perfect. It's because they want you to remove all doubt from your mind. This literally will happen. It will literally happen in Jerusalem. There will be a king in Zion with his people redeemed. Everything will be made new. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who ever comes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. He who overcomes, I will be his God. I will be his father. I will be his caretaker. He will dwell with me, and he will be my son. Come on. Saints, this is always the goal of the Bible, that you would be grafted in, that you would be redeemed. He chose one people for himself, and even they must overcome. By the grace of God, we have been included in it because we are longing to actually dwell with him. And as certain as the sun rises in the morning, this will happen. It will occur. Everything will be made new. 
There will be a day that we do not remember the trials of old. We don't remember the past sins. All that we know is dwelling with God together. Come on. I can see in some of your eyes. I know you have fought. I know you've taken some beatings at different points in your life, but you're here and you're running after God. He is longing to make you a son. And as you overcome, he is aiding you. He's breathing on you. Men like Spencer McLean are going to dine in eternity with Abraham. They're going to sit seated with Christ in eternity. That is our goal. That is what we're running after. Let me ask you, saints, does anything else in this temporal world really matter when you have that in front of you? Not even a little bit. No. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magical arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Just like in the cycle of Shofetim, God will not spend eternity with those that do not serve him. He is willing to work with men that are flawed but becoming something more. He's not willing to work with men who commit blasphemy and serve other gods. Come it on. will not happen. In this house, it doesn't matter what name you put on it. We must have one God and one God alone. Amen. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Oh, come on. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great mountain to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. This is God's bride, his holy people redeemed, with Gentile graftings who have overcome, brought in, and we are united, undisturbed, undistressed, in a kingdom that will never end and is strong and her walls are great. That is his bride. Do you want to give him his bride this evening, saints? Yes. Yes. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as a crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. They're inscribed upon his city. There were the three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Come on. See, all the way from David and Abraham up to the time of the death of the apostles, they were longing for the day that they were a part of God's bride, His holy city. But they were the city that was coming down to earth and the dwelling of God was with men. See, our hope is not in anything in this day. Our only hope is in the sons and father relationships that He's placed in front of us. Nothing else matters in this life because we are running after our Heavenly Father yeah. and His Son's example. Yeah. When we reciprocate and respond to the love that God has shown us, He has blessed us. We have sons in this house from people who were barren. Yeah. We have resurrection in this house. We have people who have been healed. And more than any ounce of that, He chose to redeem you when you were not worth redeeming. But He did it anyway because He purchased you as a pure bride. We want you to be that pure bride, that pure son this evening. Amen. Tonight, we're not just sharing this for you for eschatological debate. You know, we just read an entire passage about what is coming for us. We want, to, we want you just to get the whole picture tonight. When God's speaking this to David in Chronicles, he's speaking of something that would be coming much further than David's life. When Amos is looking back on what God spoke to David... When Amos is looking at, at that in a time of exile, in a time when the nation is going astray, destroyed, 
He can look back on what God spoke to David and he can say, nevertheless, it is still going to come. Amen. It is still going to happen no matter what the current situation is like. The apostles, man, you think the apostles had it easy. They didn't. They were being scattered all over the world. They were being persecuted, thrown into prison. And they looked back at what yeah. God spoke to David and they said, you know what? It's still going to come. Yeah. Tonight you can look forward and you can say it is still going to come. As sure as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, God is going to bring that permanent dwelling. Amen. And if you live faithfully as a son, He will call you son. And He will be your father and you will be included in that. Come on. Tell me that's not good news. That's good news. Tell me we need to get out of our daily litan litany, our ritual of life, and just think about what God's going to bring. Amen? We want to move forward. And we want to get into verse 10. But before we do, we want to remind you the New Testament writings were aimed at teaching you how to walk faithfully and how to usher in God's plans. The New Testament writings are building on something way spoken earlier. In fact, 2 Peter 3.11, we're not going to read it. It speaks of the holy and godly way we ought to live as we speed this fulfillment. Amen. It's talking about us working as sons and how we can speed up that coming. How we can actually make it happen faster if we live holy and godly before Him. Come on, I want it to happen. I yes. want to say, Lord, come soon, because it is good. Our privilege is to be able to contribute to building God's permanent dwelling as His sons. That is what we are sharing tonight. Amen. This is about David wanting to build God's house, and in turn, God wants to build David's house. Amen. We want to jump into verse 10, and I want to forewarn you. Verse 10 is going to be incredible. Stay with us, I promise. You guys with us? Yes. All right, Brother Linton. Faithful reader of the scroll. Read verse 10, brother. I will also subdue all your enemies. I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. So saints, Justin and I were looking at this, and because at times we're presumptuous, uh, it was actually more me. I'm like, surely that's the word kibosh. It's got to be the word kibosh. That, that, would, that would be great. He's going to put the kibosh on his enemies. That, that would be nice. What we found is even better. After David expresses his heart for what he would like to do for his father, his father expresses two things that he's going to do for his son. Let's take that first slide on the screen. Wow. Amen. Nice. All right. Strong's number, 3665. It says, moreover, I will subdue them. I want to take a look at that specific verse with you for just a moment, though. Strong's number, 3665 means to bend the knee, hence to humiliate, to vanquish, to humble with the very physical posture of bending your knees before the king. Have you ever heard in the Bible about knees bowing before a son of David? I know I have. Justin, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that. Man. Who wants to read a couple scriptures? Let's give this to Nick Adagina. Isaiah 45, verse 23 through 25. Let's have Pat read Philippians 2, 9 through 11. And Josephus, you're going to read Psalm 2, 7 through 9. Isaiah 45, 23 through 25. By myself I have sworn... My mouth is uttered in all integrity, a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. 
They will save me. In the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But in the Lord, all the descendants of Israel will be found righteous and will exult. Man, I think this is an incredible verse for a couple reasons. <laughs> What's incredible about this verse is Isaiah already knows that God has spoken to David and he's told David, I will cause every nation to bow the knee before you. And yet look what Isaiah is saying about God. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. He's already said that every knee will bow in front of David, but then he's saying every knee will bow in front of me. Hmm. Do you think that those two things are synonymous there? I think it's interesting that verse 25 also says, but in the Lord, all the descendants of Israel will be found righteous and will exult. Man, they're going to bow before God, all the nations, and they're going to bow before the Davidic king. And all the Israelites will be righteous and exalted when God elevates the Davidic king. It's almost like the book of Isaiah is prophesying something that is coming quickly. Hold on. We have some serious Bible students in the room. So it's entirely possible. Can I get a show of hands for those of you that knew that when God told David in the founding of the Davidic covenant that every one of his enemies would bow their knee to him? Did anybody know that before this evening? Nope. It's entirely new to the two of us. Oh, I knew it. <laughs> God bless the resident. Saints, this is a better revelation than we're acting like. Come on. This is not us. We actually just kind of stumbled into it. At the founding of the Davidic covenant, not in some separate passage speaking about it, when he gave it to the house of David, he spoke to them and said, every knee will bow before you. He was speaking about what Christ would accomplish in this very moment. When every tribe, every language, that was spoken in 1 Chronicles 17. And as we recorded it. And what's interesting is Isaiah 45 says it's about God. But you've got to go read the other chapters of Isaiah 46 through 53 and know who he's really talking about. I'm going to let you guys do that. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Man, every knee shall bow on heaven and on earth. Just ponder that for a second. So Jesus, the Davidic shepherd, receives a name that is exalted above every name. Jesus, the Davidic king, will see every knee bow before him. Where? In the heavens and on the earth. Saints, we're not just speaking about men. We're speaking about all that there is. Jesus, that Davidic son, will receive... Praise to the glory of the Father. You remember what David was concerned about when we opened this chapter? He was concerned about the glory of his Father. Come on. Well, the Davidic Son, Jesus Christ, was concerned about the glory of his Father, so he exalted his name above every name. See, this is the process that David and the Son of David have lined out for us, that we are to follow after, that you seek first the kingdom, that it is your priority above all else, and that you trust he will care for the rest. Who has Psalm 2, 7 through 9? I do. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and ends of the earth your possession. You will hold them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Can anybody guess who wrote this psalm? 
David wrote this song. <laughs> David wrote this song, and he's speaking about God speaking to him. He viewed God's treatment of him as a father treats his son. He's looking at what God is going to do to him, and he's saying, look, you said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Man, that is mind-blowing if you think of all of the parallels that are associated with that. Come on. Man, what does God say he's like in Exodus 15? A man, warrior. he is a man of war. war. In turn, God is a man of war, and he's making David like a man of war. Amen. Man, God is like a man of war, so who does he make Jesus like? What's the reason Jesus showed up? To destroy what? The devil's work. Yeah, yeah. He said, in fact, I can only do what I see my father doing, and that was to make war against the devil's work. It's like David and Jesus are almost the same guy, right? Here we see David ruling them with an iron scepter and dashing them to pieces like pottery. Fathers who are warriors, man, they make other warriors. Come on. Amen. Fathers who are warriors, they entrust to their son what they have learned and what they have been doing, and they make more little warriors, right? And that is what God is doing with David. He is teaching him to be a warrior. You want to know what's... what you are. You look at your sons. The good news is that we are constantly working and we are a work in progress. But David was a son of God and it showed up because he was like his father. Thanks. I want every one of you to have a relationship with your sons and with your heavenly father that you can see an image that you were made in him. That it's not just some kind of distant notion that you know you were made in God's image. And it's true about your spirit. It's true about the way you think. It's true about the way that you live. David had a very natural son that learned some beautiful things from him. Psalm 127, I'm going to read it, 1 through 5. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. The first thing that was promised to David was that his enemies would bow the knee to him. The second was that God was going to build a house for him. And his son, commenting on it later, notes that unless the Lord built the house, you're laboring in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. For he grants sleep to those he loves. Amen, Amen for that. Amen. Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies at the gate. He promises to establish a house and make every knee bow to him. Yeah. Well, a house is where you see victory. It's where strength comes from. It is the warriors that are coming forth. In the Solomonic Temple was the demonstration of this. It's even known in secular history as the Solomonic Age. It's unique in all time. It looks like the millennial reign. It's not the millennial reign, but it's about as close as we've gotten since the fall. Because of David's faithfulness as a son... God is going to make him a ruler and make him a father of others who would carry on his name. Amen. Because of David's faithfulness to God's house, God is faithful to his house. Saints, that's all that you really need to know. You need to eliminate every, every fear that you have in your life. You need to be faithful to his house, and I promise you, he will take care of yours. Amen. Brother Linton, 11 through 14. Yes, sir. When your days are over and you go to be with your father. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. How long? 
forever. forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Man. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. Mm. I will send him over my house and my kingdom forever. forever. His throne will be established forever. Man. Now, there's some beautiful things in this passage, like when David is faithful over God's house, how does God re- uh, how does God view David's sons? Like his own. As his own sons. You see, when you're faithful to God's house, when you are a son to God as a father, when you are k- taking care of God's house because you love your father, he will re- regard your sons as his sons. He will make promises about your sons and he will keep them as he has kept you. That is good news. But there's something else we want to look at here. Many of you, when you were reading this passage uh, during the week, you came up to us and you're like, man, this is just exactly like 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel 7. Man, this is almost the same passage. And we're like, yeah, except there's a few things missing here. The chronicler who's writing, remember, he's writing after the Babylonian captivity is trying to get us to recognize something. Linton, would you read verse 12 again? He is the one who will build a house for me. And I will establish his throne forever. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. That has not changed. That promise is still true. That stays the same from the Samuel account to the Chronicles account. There has been nothing changing about that promise to a Davidic son. It will stay forever. So going through the Babylonian captivity, I want you to know this is still true. This is still the case. Nevertheless... God's promise still stands. But saints, the thing that astounded us the most this evening is just a reality about the passage that Ezra chose to preclude a very specific verse from the original account. Who wants to volunteer to read? Rob, get 2 Samuel 7, 14 through 15. I want you to, add just 14. I want you to hear what is stated here. 2 Samuel 7. 14. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with flogging inflicted by men. Saints, did you catch it? We just read the Chronicles account. It said, he will be my son, I will be his father. And then it cuts off right there. See, Samuel included something that Chronicles did not include. It spoke about the sin that the son would commit and the flogging that he would receive but never take away his love. St. Samuel is beautiful. It's speaking about a son that has an unconditional promise that God has established him and will never leave him. But Ezra is doing something entirely different in this passage. He's speaking about a sinless son. He's speaking about one that will never be flogged for his own sin. In fact, he's speaking about a son that would be flogged for your sin and my sin. The son that is described coming from David has no sin recorded in Chronicles' account. Tell me this book is a supplement. Tell me this book is unnecessary. Ezra wanted you to know there was another son coming long after Solomon and his temple had been destroyed, but one that would never be chastened for sinning. He would be chastened for the world's sake. Ezra is recording that this promise is still very much so alive and that the very thing that kept it from reaching its fulfillment was being removed in this accounting. It's almost like this book was intended to prepare us to walk into the Gospels of Jesus Christ and hear that the son of David that was promised about right here would come and occur. 
Chronicles has already told you that there is a sinless son of David yeah. just by the way that Ezra chose to record it. Wow. Supplements. Saints, this is preparing the world to receive Jesus Christ right yeah, here. Come on. Ezra was anointed for the task. He was moved by the Spirit for this very purpose. What was not included in this passage lets you know that this is far from just a recounting of the original event. It's recounting the original event, the promises, and letting you know that God was going to send that son that was sinless. Currently, Jesus has been inaugurated as king, much like David in 1 Samuel 16. But he will be coronated like Solomon in 1 Kings 2, 12, firmly established in the new Jerusalem as Lord over all the earth. What we just read about in Revelation 21. We've seen Christ come. We've seen him interact. We see what is happening in the beginning of Chronicles where there is a genealogy. There is a son that is born. There is an army that is beginning to raise. Priests of God are beginning to rise up. But there's a waiting period before we see his fulfillment, before we see his fullness. Saints, how important is it to view your relationship with God as a father and son interaction instead of a religious transaction? The very story of the Bible is about a very special family that had a very special son. And even Chronicles, which is recording things that have gone by, are beaming at one specific point. David learned from his father how to father his son. David learned from God how to instruct his family. And man, how much has that revelation instructed you? That's what taught us about the sinless, perfect, only begotten son. Amen. Linton, read verse 15 through 16, and we're going to start to see a little bit of David's response. The entire time, as we've been reading, all we're reading is God's promise to David. Now we're going to get into David's response, and I promise this is going to be beautiful. Amen. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my family? Man, I love the fact that David went in and sat before the Lord. Come on, man. You know, sometimes when God does something for you, you're tempted to write it all over Facebook. You're tempted to text everybody in Nagadim or Ezerod and say, man, look what God's doing for me. And yet David so loved his father after, get this, a prophet is speaking to David about what he's going to do in David's house. And then he leaves there and goes and sit in front of the Lord. Now, where is God at this point? I'm not sure. Was he in the mouth of the prophet speaking the word of the Lord? Was he in the temple? I don't know. But where's the first place David goes? He wants to sit in front of his father. Come on, tell me that is not a beautiful picture of a son and a father. Saints, does that not make perfect sense when you think about being a small child and when you needed that affirmation, when that word was spoken from your parent, all that you wanted to do was sit with your father for a moment. This relationship that he has is very, very real with the Lord, and it's an intimate kind of relationship. The whole world's going to hear about this promise, but he does not care at all about the world hearing about it until he has sat with his father. Think about your prayer life. Think about the way that you interact with the Lord. We want to cultivate an intimacy with him that is like a father and like a son. Come on, how many things has God done in your life? How many things has he promised you? that you just need to go sit in front of the Lord and remember it. You just need to go sit in front of the Lord and have him re-speak that to you, because I promise he will. 
Most of our problems is that we forget what God has promised yeah. and we go everywhere else but going and sitting in front of the Lord. I love David for this. The very first thing he does is go and sit in front of the Lord. And then he says, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my family? Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? You brought me this far. David started as one life obedient to his father. Think about everything that God says about him. He took him from the sheep pens, man. He took him from, from picking up dung and cattle and all that kind of stuff out there on the backside of the wilderness. And then God made him into a family with sons. Think about that for a second. God made him into a family with sons. And he is bringing him to be king over a nation. How far has God brought you? How far has God brought you tonight? Come on, where were you at before you had a family with sons? Come on, where were you at before you got into this family and interacted with all the other sons? How far has God brought you? Man, we need to refresh that in our hearts tonight. We need to remember the good things God has done and how far he has brought us. Yeah. I remember when I wasn't sure I was going to live another hour. Lynch, when you get verse 17. And, if, and as if this were not enough in your sight, O oh God, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant. You have looked on me as though I was as though I were the most exalted Ooh. of men, wow. O Lord God. <laughs> Saints, David's trials produce the kind of heart that he has after God. The more that you understand that, the less we start to run away from difficulty. It caused him to draw close to the Lord. The Psalms are proof of that, that are blessing our lives every day. Many of the things that we've quoted even tonight are the Psalms that he wrote that are kind of a window to the soul. Yeah. When you hear what's going on in the text, what is happening, the Psalms are often what's happening in the man's heart, inside of his mind, as he is working through the situations that are in front of him. Yeah. But that is not how God chooses to see him. He chooses to see him as his son that has been sanctified. He chooses to see him as his son that has been set on high. He chooses to see him as his son that is a success, that is what he was aiming at. God has a father's heart when he's looking at him. The truth is all godly fathers have a tendency to view their sons as special. This is not the case often in the world. You'll hear all kinds of statements. But fathers that really love the Lord treat their children as special. Sometimes that shows up in, you're way, way too sensitive, way, way too nice. You, you, you need to set a standard. Uh, but that's a separate topic this evening. <laughs> it's innate when you feel that you have become a son of God that you treat the sons he gave you as precious. Yeah. You can hear that between God and David. It's, it doesn't have to just be a theological concept that John 1 gave you the right to become a son of God. You can actually know him in that way. Come on. All godly fathers have the ability to call out of their natural and spiritual sons the things that they see growing in them, to speak to them the life that must come out. God chose to exalt his son David. Saints, we must realize how our fathers see us. When we're speaking about pastors in this room, when we're speaking about older brothers in this room, when we're speaking about our heavenly father, this needs to inspire something inside of you. David committed adultery. David was a murderer. David had wretched things in his life that he had paid a serious cost for. 
that repentance occurred, but the consequences of sin were ravaging him for quite some time. But God saw him as his son. Thanks. Let's dispel all fear in this room right now. We have the opportunity to walk with a Savior that is able to make us stand, that is able to call out of us more than we are able to, and that should cause you to turn and do it for others. Our Father is a good one, and not just in some cheeky lyric, but as a good and faithful God that does no wrong. Brother Linton, will you pick up in verse 18? What more can David say to you for honoring your servants? For you know your servants. I don't know about you, but that's one of the most humbling verses of the Bible. I don't know about you, but that's possibly one of the most terrifying verses of the Bible. What more? One more time, Linton. I'm not sure they caught it. Will you read read, read it loud and proud for us? Yeah, I don't know that you guys are getting all this. (laughs) Just think through what the man's saying. What more can they say to you for honoring your servant? For you know your servant. Come on. Yes, he does. As we're sharing this, I can see it on some of your faces. David's trials were recorded forever. I mean, read through the book of Psalms. All day and all night long, my tears have been my food. I lay on my bed and weep and cry out for you. My soul is in agony. Come on, tell me there's nobody in this room that's experienced that. And yet... It says in the earlier verse that God was looking at him like he was the most exalted man. Was David the most exalted man? No. No. He was a pitiful, pitiful, miserable failure at times. He did things that caused him to hide from the presence of the Lord. He did things that he knew he shouldn't have done. And how does his father see him? As an exalted man. Tell me we don't need to need to understand for a second how our father sees us. Any father in here have sons in the room? Yes. Has your son ever screwed up royally? Yes. Has your son ever embarrassed you in front of everybody? And yet you can't imagine not seeing your son as someone special. You can't imagine withholding your love from your son. You can't imagine not helping your son grow out of that situation. Listen in verse 18 what he says. He says, what more can David say to you for honoring your servant? That means he's astounded. He doesn't know what to say. He's listening to the promise and he's like, Lord, what can I say? For you know your servant. See, there's nothing in David's heart. There's nothing in David's life. And there's nothing in your heart and your life that's hidden from the Lord. He knows you. He knows exactly where you're at. He knows the one thing that you're craving for. He knows the one thing that you are praying for. He knows the one thing that you desire the most. Even if you don't know it. Even if you don't know the motives of your heart. He knows the motives of your heart. He knows you better than you know yourself. Oftentimes we get in a service. We get in worship and we feel like we've got to uh, explain to God what happened in our lives. We feel like we can't connect with our father because we haven't told him what we've done. And the truth is, he already knows. He's your father. And he knows you. And yet he sees his sons as the most exalted of men. Come on, tell me that's not good news. Tell me that's something that we have got to get in our souls about our father. Saints, we're going to hand out some scriptures in just a moment on this subject. But I want you to consider the words that we've had in the previous services ahead of this. 
full throttle, going on the offensive, that we are, with everything within us, going to be advancing against the enemy and doing the will of God. That we are going to get our lives level so that we might create a runway. What if you're sitting in here this evening and the biggest things that have been hindering your speed, hindering your ability to go full throttle, hindering your level, is that you're insecure and so you're compensating in every conversation that you have. You want to present yourself as better than you actually are while you're sitting with righteous men and women around you, precluding yourself from the ability to actually be helped. What if fear is keeping you from running at a pace that is actually productive before the Lord? You're scared you're going to get it wrong, so you're barely doing anything. You're cruising at idle when you're supposed to be letting it all out. We've been brought to this place because there is an interaction with the Lord that we must learn to cultivate, that we must learn to live in, because you cannot be the son of God that you're called to be while you're hiding from him. He knows you. You know him. Stop pretending with his other sons and the people around you. David says, what can I say? He has already confessed at these instances in his life where there has been a problem, repented and turned. He knows who he is before the Lord. The Lord knows who he is. And yet his father was still willing to work with him and cause him to rise a little bit higher. Yeah. I want every one of you to run at a, on level ground with a full throttle kind of pace, to be able to go on the offensive. Amen. But we must strip away the baggage that keeps you from being able to do that. Yeah. All right, we're going to hand out scriptures. Matthew 7, 9 through 12. Emmy. Psalm 19, 12 through 14. Gabriel. Proverbs 24, 16. Micaiah. Well, let's stick with that for now. It's got Matthew 7, 9 through 12. I know tonight one of the father-son goals that God has for us is that we actually see him as a father. Yeah. That we actually experience him as a father. I know that. This verse was, was said to us yesterday in worship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This verse was said to us yesterday in worship. Mm-hmm. God is not like, I mean, even if an earthly father, you ask an earthly father for something, and he's going to give you a good thing because that's what a father is. That's what a father does. How much more your heavenly father? In our time of need, he will fill us with the Holy Spirit so that we can overcome. Even if you failed the last time. If you failed the last time, you can pray the next time. And he wants you to overcome, so he gives you a good gift so that you can. That's what grace is. He will not neglect what we need because of past sin. You know, I watch Titus all the time with his, his daddy Judah. Titus is not insecure around his daddy at all. Titus is not, he doesn't walk around fearful. Actually, today he was studying with us and he was all playful with his daddy. He was running around. He's not scared of messing up and doing anything wrong. You know what he knows about Judah? He knows that Judah loves him. 
And he knows that Judah is trying to help him. And he knows that when he needs something, he can go to Judah and he will give it. That is the kind of father-son goal that God is trying to accomplish here tonight. Amen. The only reason that David gets this far with God, the only reason he can say, wow, you've brought me this far, is because he lived like a son. It wasn't just an attitude he had for a day or two. He actually lived like a son. Yeah. When he got it wrong, man, he repented because he knew who his father was. When he got it right, he didn't feel the need to broadcast it because he knew who his father was. That is the kind of heart that we see in David that we are trying to stir up. Saints, our almighty father wishes to give you good gifts. The gateway to that, my son Titus on the front row, receiving what he needs, is that he cannot allow pride, fear, or insecurity to keep him from asking what is it that you need this evening? Do you need his power to fill your life? Do you need his word to come alive to you? Do you need to learn to be a better husband or a better father? Do you need to learn to walk in an area that you have had a limp this whole time? Your father wishes to give you good gifts, but you will never get it by being hidden and being secure in your own reality, in your own way of thinking. Saints, if you can't be bold about what you need in front of your siblings on your left and right, you will not receive from the Father. You will die of starvation. Yeah. You will die of thirst. All the while having a loving, tender God that is right there alongside you, longing to give you what you need. Don't let anything hold you back from Him. Psalm 19, 12 through 14. Who can discern His errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Saints David is fully aware that the Lord knows every detail of his personal sinful failings. What the Lord is also aware of is that David himself has never chosen another God. That his God is the God of Israel. That his God is that rock. That his Redeemer is that one and only God. I want to suggest to you this evening that despite many things that occurred, David's refusal to commit blasphemy by following another God is why he has continued to be treated as a son. Because as a son, he came running to his father. This will be important in coming weeks. This kind of concept is something that is a much larger picture throughout the word. Who has Proverbs 24, 16? I do. For though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. But the wicked are brought down by calamity. A righteous man falls seven times and he rises again. How does he do that? Does a righteous man just pick himself up by his bootstraps and forget that it ever happened? No. A righteous man falls and gets back up is because God is able to make his son stand. Because God is able to raise his, son, his sons back up. Yeah. Amen. When God's sons fall, he's able to pick them up and put them on better footing. Amen. They're able to get back up because they know their father. They're able to look at him, trust him, and allow God to pull them up. Amen? And we serve such an amazing God. He is a redeemer. He is a savior. He is our leader. He is our protection. And he is our inheritance. Linton, will you read 19 through 21? We're going to learn a little bit more about his character. O oh Lord, for the sake of your servant, 
and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made known all these great promises. There is no one like you, O Lord, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth, God who, the one nation on earth whose God went out to redeem a people for himself and to make a name for yourself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations from before your people who you redeemed from Egypt. There is no God, there is no true Lord other than him. He is the highest. He is the alpha. He is the apex and the almighty. No other God did something like him where he redeemed a people and made them his sons. He's unique in every regard because of that fact. He looked at everything that was around on the earth and said, yeah, I'm going to make for myself a people. I'm not choosing one out of this mix. I'm going to create one out of a barren couple. And then he made them his. I'm going to read to you Deuteronomy 32, 9 through 12. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotment and inheritance. In a desert land he found him, in a barren and howling waste he shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spread its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. The Lord alone led them. No foreign god was with him. No God of any other people or nation has done such great exploits to purchase a people for himself. He did it alone. No other God helped him. He wants you to know that I redeemed this people and it was not by anybody else's help. I did it because I wanted to have sons. Lenton, will you pick up in 22 through 25? You make your people Israel your very own forever. And you, O Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord, let the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house be established forever. Do as you promised, so that it will be established and that your name will be great forever. Then men will say, The Lord Almighty, the God over Israel, is Israel's God, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. You, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him, so your servant has found courage This is the end of our chapter. And as we comment on these last verses, there are all kinds of neat shadows and types. There are all kinds of eschatological themes in these verses. There's all kinds of implications about the temple and about Solomon and about what's coming after Solomon and the temple. But that's not what we notice for tonight. When we were looking at this verse, we saw in verse 25. You, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him. So your servant has found courage to pray to you. Almighty God. That's good. That's awesome. God revealed to David what he's going to do. God didn't do everything for David in that moment. He didn't show David exactly how it would all come to pass. In fact, I'm sure David's sitting right now looking at everything and seeing it's not have come to pass yet. God didn't reveal any of that to him. But what did God do? He just spoke it. What did David's father do? He just spoke to him what he will do. And David, hearing what God would do, he found courage to pray to God. Come on, that's faith right there. If you haven't had to find the courage to pray, 
you have not been born again. The wrench in, inside of a man's soul, yeah. when you realize how desperately you need something and how desperately you don't deserve it, yeah. or even slightly scared to commit it out loud, verbally, and say it because then you must do it. Yeah. But God helped a man find his courage to pray to him by revealing and reminding him of his promises. You need to be reminded of the promises of God in this house that he has already spoken to you. Some are in his written word. Some he spoke to you individually. Not both are completely valid. We ought to find the courage that we need from what he has revealed to his people. As you stand, we want to read to you a couple of scriptures. You guys can stand. God revealed to David what he would do for a servant, and his servant found courage to pray to him. You know, it may be that David was reminded of Joshua 21, 43, where it says that every promise that God gave was fulfilled. Not one of them failed. You think maybe David was able to look back into the word and see that God is always faithful to his promises? And that's how David found courage? Psalm 40 is a very interesting psalm, and it's written by David. Verses 5 through 6 say, Many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders you have done. The things you have planned for us, no one can recount to you. The things that he has done are many, and they're wondrous. The things that he has planned that you have not seen yet are also many, and are also wondrous. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. Saints, David was a servant of the Lord. And like a biblical bond servant, he became more than that. When someone who was enslaved to a master fell in love with the master in his household and began to relate to him more like a father than a slave master, they grew to a relationship that was more than transactional, more than religious, but was familial. And his time of servitude was up and he didn't want to leave because he loved his master. He loved his father. His ears were pierced. With an all-like tool on a door frame, it marked him permanently and said, this one is not part of the family. This one's not a slave. This one is a son. This psalm was written by David. David's example is of a man that served the Lord but grew to become a son before him and understood what he had desired from his life. Hebrews 3 says, But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house. Saints, you are his house. If we hold on to our courage in the hope of which we boast, then we will receive everything that has been promised. Like that son of David, like David, the son of David, has beckoned us to a greater relationship with him. It is not just a name that is not just superficial. And his promises will be fulfilled. The ones that are written in 1 Chronicles 17 and the ones that he's spoken to your family personally. I'm going to read you the last two verses and then we'll close with a single scripture together. O Lord, you are our God. You have promised these good things to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant 
that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, O Lord, have blessed it, and it will be blessed. See, when God has blessed you and He has made you a son, there is no undeserving curse that will stick to you. There is nothing that the enemy can do to derail you from it. You are blessed. You're blessed in this house because He's called you out by name. I'm looking in some of your eyes that I know that you feel like you are cursed because you have not received what you are longing for. Those promises will be fulfilled. Those promises are still as true the day that you receive them. So we're going to shake off every fear, every concern, every insecurity, every feeling of being cursed in this house. Amen. And we're going to say God has blessed it, so it is blessed. He has stated it, so it will occur. Amen. The truth is, is that God's spoken many things about our lives, about glory that is coming in the future for us. He's spoken that to this church. He's spoken that to the heads of families. He's spoken that to individuals. There is a glory coming for this house that is greater than what we see now, but it's still coming. We have to have that kind of relationship with our Father where we just trust what He says, where we don't succumb to the normal woes of life, fear, insecurity, lack of courage, lack of confidence. It's time that we walk on level ground in this house. It's time that we walk on level ground and we start gaining some speed. To do that, you're going to have You're going to have to have a father-son relationship with father-son goals. You're going to have to have it. The more you treat this as a transactional relationship, the more you get beat down when you fail, the more you get beat down when something happens that's embarrassing, that is not the highway of holiness that God wants you to walk on. That's the highway of religiousness. Tonight we want to pray and ask God. We want to actually sit in front of our Father. We want to actually get before the Lord. I don't want to ask you when's the last time you've done that. I don't want to ask. Because I know for me it's been too long. I know sometimes whenever all the clutter of life, all the difficulties, all of everything, the ball traits and all that comes in. It's just because we need to sit down with our Father again. Man, how much would that fix inside of us right now if we just sat down and heard from our Father? How much would that fix if we just heard Him re-speak His promises to us? And then we looked at him and said, you know, because you've revealed these things to me, I have found courage to pray to you. Man, God wants to elevate our courage tonight. I can feel it. I can feel that God wants us walking out of here with our heads held high. He wants us full of the confidence that Titus has right now. He's standing in front of all you guys, and Titus really doesn't like large crowds. But he's standing next to his dad. He's standing next to his father. That's what God wants to do to you tonight. So we're going to lift up our hands. In closing, Numbers 24, 17 says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. We want to tell you this evening that that star has been rising. It is rising, it is rising. Peter even says it is rising in our own hearts to an increasing measure. We know that you have the Lord. We know you have experienced that star. And what we are crying out for tonight It's for that star to come in a more full measure where it envelops you. Where you begin to reflect the glory of your Father. The reality that is in the heavens is coming to the earth. There is a temple, there is a structure, and there is a body and a mind that is going to be you. Tonight we are going to stare into the face of our God and witness what is to come. 
Almighty King, we reach out to you now. Or we say we want to be like you. I can feel that you are drawing us nearer and nearer. Lord, that you are rising inside of our hearts. We say transform us. Let your glory rest inside of us. Lord, we want to be like our Heavenly Father. Too many things have come between us. Lord, we reject those things now. We praise your name and we repent of those things. We say let fear be damned. Lord, let insecurity be cast out of this house. Lord, sin not separate us from your goodness. Wash us and make us clean. Let your word and your spirit dwell in power inside of this house, Holy One. Lord, we believe that at your altar you will hear our prayer and whisper things to your sons that are not for the rest of the world but are your deep presence. 